The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Ms. Marin McKenna. And she has a brand new hot off the press book titled Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Marin is an award-winning journalist. She's the author who specializes most often in public health and food policy issues. Her work has appeared widely in National Geographic, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Wired, Scientific American, and Slate, among other publications. Her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore?, has garnered more than one million views. We have spoken in the past about her other books. She is the author of two previous excellent books titled Superbug and Beating Back the Devil. She is based in Atlanta, Georgia. She also spends part-time in Maine. Marin, welcome. Thank you for having me. I am delighted because as a dietitian, I'm very interested in this parallel universe of people who have been affected by antibiotic-resistant infections. And you write that, of course, this tells the history of how chicken got to be our major meat source in the United States, but also how we industrialized the system. And you write that the United Nations calls antibiotic resistance the greatest and most urgent global risk spreading by means of food, and that by 2050, Antibiotic resistance will cost the world $100 trillion and will cause a staggering 10 million deaths per year. That's why I wanted to have you back on. Those are really amazing numbers, aren't they? I feel that antibiotic resistance generally is not really understood by the mass audience as being the threat that it is. I mean, in the United States, 23,000 people a year die from antibiotic-resistant infections, and another 2 million people are made sick enough that they seek a doctor's care or they go into the hospital. But for some reason, it's kind of a hidden epidemic. I agree. I think that unless we are ourselves elderly or chronically ill or recovering from cancer or an organ transplant or something like that, or unless we have a family member who has been affected in that manner, antibiotic resistance isn't really present to us. And as much as antibiotic resistance generally is a hidden or or not understood problem, the degree to which antibiotic resistance is affected by the way we use antibiotics in agriculture as well as in medicine is, I think, an even more hidden part of the problem, which is how I ended up writing this book. Yeah. Well, I wondered how you even got started writing about antibiotic resistance, because this has been the focus of your work for a long time, and I truly see you as one of our national experts and investigators. I mean, if anybody's a sleuth on this topic, it's you. Oh, thank you. So it makes a lot of sense in retrospect, but it felt totally random at the time. And you're right, I've been writing about antibiotic resistance in in the sense of writing books about it for about 10 years now because my previous book, Superbug, was essentially the biography of one 
organism, MRSA or MRSA, drug-resistant staph, and telling that organism's biography was my way of finding my way into the international epidemic of antibiotic resistance. But the way this got started was in about 2003. I used to be a newspaper reporter. I worked in Atlanta, and I was hanging out with the Centers for Disease Control. And the, the CDC has a core of frontline disease detectives. They're called the Epidemic Intelligence Service who start at the CDC at the beginning of their careers, right after they finished medical residency or right after they finished their PhDs. And they give the CDC two years of their lives, two years in which they promise to get on any plane, anywhere, any time of day, to go to any outbreak. And in exchange, they get amazing experience and a credential that will make their careers. So I had committed to taking a year and embedding with that core of people as much as I could. There were about 90 of them every year. And I ended up visiting one of them in Los Angeles, as he was in the midst of a MRSA outbreak. And it was a really fascinating outbreak for a disease geek like me because it was an outbreak of MRSA among gay men. And the question was, was it being spread in some manner among particular clubs that they would go to? Because if it turned out that the clubs were in involved, then there would be some kind of like sex panic in the city and things would be shut down and, and it would be very, very politically controversial. And fortunately the disease detective proved that what was going on was just that the organism was being spread on benches, just like gym benches. And so this overreaction was avoided. So that got me started thinking about antibiotic resistance because I'd never really thought about it before. And a couple of years later, I had left newspapers and gotten a grant to spend a year looking at what was going on in emergency rooms. This is in 2007. And so for eight nights a month, for 12 months, I shadowed an overnight shift in an emergency room somewhere. Well, 2007 happened to be the peak of what we think of as the community MRSA epidemic in the United States. And so every night, people came into those ERs with incredible antibiotic-resistant infections. And so I really got to see the burden, and that really kind of sent me on this journey. But it also, as I started that research, really caused this book to happen, or at least started me thinking on the, in the path that led to this book, because as I was looking at MRSA, I went into looking at it thinking that there were two epidemics. There was one in hospitals dating back to the 1960s that arose because of the hardiness of bacteria and our carelessness using antibiotics and medicine. And then there was a second epidemic that everyone, I think, knew about, which was MRSA moving out into what medicine calls the community, which is sort of everywhere outside the walls of a hospital. And that's the MRSA that affects kids in schools and that has ruined the careers of a number of professional athletes. But it turned out there was a third epidemic, and that was on farms. And I actually tell a piece of that story in this new book, Big Chicken, that in 2004, an epidemic of MRSA linked to pigs began to spread among pig farmers in the Netherlands and then moved into healthcare in the Netherlands and then caused epidemics across Europe and eventually across to Canada and then to the United States. And what made this so unusual is that the antibiotic resistance signature of this particular strain, the, the drugs that it was resistant to, were not drugs that were being used in medicine against MRSA. It was drugs that were being given to the pigs as part of the industrial farming conditions that they were being held at. And that was a big red arrow pointing maybe for the first time with real clarity to an epidemic arising from antibiotic use in agriculture 
that could not be challenged in any way. There was only one explanation, and that was the agricultural use of the antibiotics. And it was that epidemic coming, you know, years after I had first started looking at antibiotic resistance that really started me on the path that led to this book now. Mm-hmm. Well, I was surprised by certain components of this book, and I'm sure you probably had some wow moments yourself. So I want to just say that I love the way you start this book. You're in Paris, and you're eating this delicious chicken. So you make the story so compelling and so interesting. Page turners, I think, is the way they describe books like these. You cannot put them down. But I had learned that Alexander Fleming, of course, who discovered penicillin, I knew that he had warned it was an audience in New York, and you write about it, about the consequences of using these drugs carelessly, penicillin and antibiotics carelessly. And you report that using small amounts is going to be dangerous. But what really struck me as being so interesting is that he said, in such a case, the thoughtless person playing with penicillin treatment is morally responsible for the death of the man who finally succumbs to infection with the penicillin-resistant organism. This was much stronger than I had ever read, you know, that he had said. I knew that he warned about low doses. I knew that there's a reason why we have to finish our medication. But for him to be so adamant about, hey, this is dangerous stuff, don't mess with it, and if you do and you cause a death, it's morally wrong. You know, I had heard the same thing as you. I think in the past couple of years, some people have gone back to Fleming's writings and speeches around the time that he got the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1945. And the thing he said in his Nobel Prize speech, I think, has been fairly frequently published at this point. Yeah. And what he, what he said in that speech, and you can find it actually on the Nobel Prize's website, is that the time may come when we just dispense penicillin freely. In, uh, he says that penicillin may be available in the shops and people may help themselves to it and dose themselves badly, especially underdosing themselves, and therefore they will cause antibiotic resistance to happen. What he was warning about was that creating that Darwinian battleground in which the weaker bacteria are killed by the antibiotic, but ones that have already randomly developed the molecular defenses against the antibiotic will survive and thrive. So everyone, I think, is kind of, or many people have become familiar with that warning. But it's a kind of morally neutral warning. It's just, you know, we shouldn't do this thing, or, or we should be careful that we don't do this thing. But after he knew he was going to get the Nobel Prize, but before he accepted it, he was being fated in New York, and a New York Times reporter went to this dinner that was being given on his behalf, and at this dinner, that's what Fleming said. Yeah. Moral responsibility will be attached to people or entities that cause resistant bacteria to come into the world. And it's a really, really powerful and, and much less well-known warning. And it seemed to me that given the entire history of antibiotic use, particularly in agriculture, that this was a warning that deserved to be sounded again. I totally agree. I will encourage people to note that section of this book in particular and share those words because they are so critically important. You want to paint a picture of what it was like before we had antibiotics? I will. 
I think it's so hard for us to imagine ourselves into this condition. But it shouldn't be hard because if we're not more careful with antibiotics, we may find our way back there again. But almost everyone that I know and you know was born within the antibiotic era, right? right. So Fleming, the accident, the lab accident essentially that causes Fleming to identify penicillin happens in 1928 when apocryphally he leaves a window open in his laboratory in London and something blows in the window onto the petri dishes of staph bacteria that he's working with. And when he comes back later to clean those dishes off and reuse them, because it's 1928 and they don't have plastics, so they have to wash the glass off and reuse it, he discovers that there are little dead zones on the staff. And what's caused the dead zones is at the center of each dead zone, there's a tiny speck of penicillium mold. And it has excreted a chemical that killed the staff. So that's the very start of the antibiotic era, even though penicillin doesn't really get developed as a drug until 1940, gets rolled out on the battlefields of World War II in 1943, becomes available to the general public in about 1944, and is so remarkable that the Nobel Prize is awarded just one year later in 1945. So before penicillin, the mildest infections, things that we would not think twice about now, were life-threatening. The first person to get penicillin experimentally was a British police officer named Albert Alexander, who, like a lot of middle-class British people, loved to garden. And he went out in his back garden, and he was gardening, and he scratched his face on a thorn on a rose bush. And it caused a fulminant infection that he, his skin was ruined, he lost an eye, he could barely walk, and he was almost cured by the first doses of penicillin, except Penicillin was very hard to make, and they didn't have quite enough drug, and so he died. So in my own family, there's a, a story. My great-uncle died in 1938, three years before Albert Alexander's experiment, from getting scratched and cut by something falling on him at work. He was a fireman, and the heavy hose nozzle on one of the fire hoses tumbled off a shelf and hit him. And two weeks later, he died of what we would now call septicemia. The only treatment they had for him was transfusions. People lined up who had worked with him in his firehouse to give transfusions, hoping to dilute what at the time they thought of as blood poisoning. Mm. So scratches were deadly. Childbirth was deadly. Cuts were deadly. I remember my grandmother on the other side of the family being absolutely obsessed with hand washing and scrubbing the kitchen and scrubbing the floors. And when I was growing up, I thought this was absurd. But I grew up within the antibiotic era, and my grandmother was born just before it. So anything that we think of now as just time, not even risks in our daily lives, could have ended our lives back then. And if mm. we run out of antibiotics, it will again. Exactly. You are destined to do this work. I just might add that. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Marin McKenna. She is a well-known author. She has specialized in public health and food policy, and the book we are talking about is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. We have to get to chicken, but I also feel like I need to bring forth some other surprising facts that you brought forth. Your historical research, I want to let our listeners know, is remarkable. It's an entertaining read. How did you do the research where you were able to dig up such fine points in history about the evolution of antibiotic use? So I read a lot of footnotes. <laughs> 
That's basically my research method is that I go back to the primary sources. So when I read about a scientist having done an experiment or having written a paper, I go back and find that paper. And then I read the footnotes of that paper. And the footnotes are usually references to other papers, and I keep on sort of stepping backward through the history. And in this case, a lot of this early history, so if you do historical or scientific historical research now, you can rely on a lot of things being digitized and in databases, but a lot of this history actually was not. So I suspect that I was one of the top customers for some of the online sales sites for old books because there was a point a couple of years ago where old books, like from the 30s and 40s and 50s, were arriving at my house almost every day, primarily bound volumes of the proceedings of conferences that had never been digitized and made available to everyone. So I have stacks of bound volumes of conference discussions from the 40s and 50s and 60s about what was going on with antibiotics and what was going on in agriculture. And they were really eye-opening once I got them. And they're eye-opening to the reader who has the pleasure and advantage of being able to benefit from all of your hard work. So after antibiotics were developed, the country, as you describe, is giddy about them. And we're putting antibiotics in lipstick and doing experiments where routine doses of antibiotics are given to small groups of premature babies. They're given for a few weeks and up to several years to people who had no capacity to consent, including developmentally disabled children held in a eugenics institution in Florida and undernourished poor children in Guatemala and Kenya. And you give many more examples of how widespread this use and experimentation was with antibiotics. I was very shocked to learn that antibiotics were painted on the outside cuts of meat to prevent them from going bad. They were added to milk. They were used in ice that fish were held on. It was incredible. I'm surprised that we have any functioning antibiotics today, quite frankly. So all of those stories that you've just recited were really stunning to me. I mean, I thought I knew something about the history of antibiotic development and how antibiotics had been rolled out. And I knew that the story of antibiotics from their earliest days until today were sort of a story of uncomplicated belief in science and that where we have ended up is in a situation of unintended consequences. Yeah. But even so, the degree to which people never assumed there was a downside was just shocking to me. When I started reading in one of these bound conference volumes that I mentioned, that people were doing things like pumping cattle full of antibiotics in their veins before they slaughtered them, or dunking raw chicken into vats of antibiotics so that it would be good on the shelf, not for days, but for weeks that you could have raw chicken with a shelf life of a month and no one thought that was a bad idea. Yeah. It was jaw-dropping. <laughs> For me as well. And this is after we hear Fleming's remarkable comments about don't mess around with these drugs. So I'm going to be devil's advocate here and, and speak in behalf of the people who were doing these things that to us seem self-evidently crazy. And that is that, so in World War II, Antibiotics really changed the course of the war. Mm. They cause hundreds of thousands of soldiers who would otherwise have died on the battlefield or afterward from horrible infections to come home 
And so that's where all the enthusiasm about antibiotics comes from. It's not just that they protect us from infection, but specifically that they really change the course of the war. Right. So everyone's very excited about them. They seem like this uncomplicated, fantastic gift to science. But it's important to remember, and I think most people don't know this, and, and I didn't really know it in detail, that one of the things that happens, when we think of World War II, we think of like the bombing of Britain, the firebombing of Dresden. We're kind of used to the idea that there was widespread physical devastation. But what I think we don't know, or at least I never learned, is that there was also widespread agricultural devastation, that herds and flocks of animals had been killed, that arable land had been devastated, that the fishing fleets of the coastal nations had been taken for military use. This fall, the movie Dunkirk is out about the civilian evacuation of British soldiers stuck over in Europe. And those are all like civilian craft going over to save those soldiers. And it's just one example of how fishing boats were no longer fishing boats. They were being used for something in the war effort. And right after the war, there were a number of really bad weather events. So there were crop destructions from typhoons and floods and so forth in Europe, in Asia, in South Asia. As a result, there was a real feeling that the food supply was much more fragile than anyone had expected and that it needed to be protected. And so out of this vast enthusiasm of antibiotics for what they're doing to people, there comes, I think, the sense that we can also use antibiotics to save agriculture, to save the food supply. And increasing the amount of protein that they could get out across the world and doing it cheaply because the war was also financially devastating, I think that must have seemed a moral good. It must have seemed something very noble to do. Of course, like almost everything, it quite quickly gets corrupted. But to start with, I think people had good intentions, and I think it's worth remembering that. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that so often... Most of us start out with good intentions. We just don't think through enough the unintended consequences, and I think that is certainly the story with industrialized agriculture. Just because we only, unfortunately, have 30 minutes, I want to jump ahead and get to the point where we're using antibiotics now in livestock as growth promoters, and it, because this book is Big Chicken, the focus is on the fact that antibiotics were it enabled farmers to produce a heavier weighted chicken, more meat, more cheap protein for people to eat at a time when we needed that or we thought that that was good. We probably still do. I mean, that's really the argument that we're facing today is that we've got two sides. We've got people who are concerned about the health risks, and yet we've got people who have their heels stuck in the ground saying, hey, this is good for producers in that you can get a fatter animal to market sooner. So the book's called Big Chicken because chickens are the first animals to get growth promoter antibiotics experimentally, but also because in the United States it may turn out to be that chicken is the first sector of the protein economy that exits routine antibiotic use. So mm -hmm. they're there at the very beginning of this story, and they may provide some of the solution. But it's my contention that what happens with chicken is the way we introduce antibiotics into chicken first and then into other animals, that's really the prime mover of what we think of as industrial-scale agriculture now. You know, when people think about what is factory farming, what caused factory farming, and what you'll hear people say is, 
well, it's because we don't sufficiently respect animal welfare, or it's because people got the idea to treat animals like widgets and to move them through the process faster. I think that antibiotics lie behind all of that. I think it's the routine use of antibiotics, first as growth promoters to make animals bigger, to make them grow more tasty muscle faster, and then secondarily, antibiotics as prevention. So you can grow animals faster. It encourages people to put more animals on farms and in barns because they're more profitable. And then once you start to put them in together more, they are at more disease risk. And then antibiotics save them from that. I think that's the thing that starts the ball rolling. Yeah. For everything we think of now as the parts of large-scale agriculture that we want to critique. Now, antibiotics to me are sort of like you know, the man behind the curtain for all of this. Exactly. And, you know, I think another big driver, both in the acceptance of livestock, in this case chickens that were treated with antibiotics or given antibiotics, and the removal of antibiotics from livestock agriculture lies with, as what was described earlier, the American homemaker was the driver, and now, of course, it's the American consumer who's saying no get these off of my table, out of my kitchen. It's interesting to see who is going to be the driver of the way we produce our food ultimately, you know, what is accepted and what isn't. I mean, the fascinating thing about this story to me is that for a really long time in the United States, the regulators and agriculture were completely at loggerheads. So the first government action against antibiotic use in agriculture is in England in 1969. They ban growth promoters, then uh, Scandinavia, and then the rest of Europe follow. In, we try that in the United States in 1977, and with the, the FDA attempts to get growth promoters withdrawn from the market. A congressman with strong agricultural ties stops the FDA from doing that, and that dead stop persists from the 1970s up until the Obama administration comes in. And now we do, for the first time this year, as of January 1st of this year, we do have some control over growth promoter antibiotics in the United States, though not really over the preventive use of antibiotics. That is still a much more complicated question. But all the time that those two entities, agriculture and the government, were holding each other at arm's length and refusing to budge, consumers were really starting to move. And it's the coalition that forms of healthcare systems who don't want to feed meat raised with the routine use of antibiotics to their patients, and school systems for school lunch, and chefs, and just everyday parents who are concerned about this, who get together, they're really what turns the market around. And it's really remarkable. So many companies that I have spoken to now, because many companies have gotten on this train, and I'd ask them, well, why did you do this? And what they say is our consumers told us they wanted it. So consumer pressure really changed this around. And it wasn't government regulation because government regulation in the United States came after the consumer pressure was applied. It was consumers who said, we're not going to accept this anymore in our food, and the market responded. Exactly. And I want to thank you, Marin McKenna, as a journalist, for making it possible for consumers to know the truth about what's going on with antibiotics. And unfortunately, our time is up. I knew our time would fly. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
I cannot recommend this book enough, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. For more information about this exceptional book, Big Chicken, go to bigchickenthebook.com. We have been speaking with Marin McKenna, award-winning journalist and author specializing in public health and food policy who has written extensively about antibiotic use and misuse in our food system. Marin, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for this conversation. It was fantastic. 